Hello and welcome to Alchemical Conversations. I'm Elior. And I'm Danny. So today we're going to talk about gods. What is God? Who is God? Why God? Oh my God. Yeah, there are a few words more triggering today than the word God. So let's explore it. Let's try and understand what is God? Who is God? Does God exist? Alright, let's dig in. So where shall we begin? Perhaps with the word, right? Yeah, I mean, God, first of all, is a word in English, so... It's a noun. Start from there. Yeah, and it has uh, consonants and one vowel, and it refers to something. Now, what it refers to is different for different people. This is true. It depends on your life experience, your background, particularly what religion was around you, right? Yes, or a lack of religion. That's true. So I thought it would be appropriate to begin with the etymology of the word, with the origin of it, the historical origin. So we can trace it back to the Proto-Indo-European root of gut, G-H-U-T, which means that which is invoked. Okay, so this meaning of God, it's basically anything that you like call upon, right? Mm -hmm. you draw attention to by by uttering something or by doing some kind of action, right? Yeah, different kinds of actions, like prayer is one way of invoking a god. You draw your attention and you ask for a wish or you like you fill yourself with intention. And that intentionality is basically calling upon certain qualities in us. Yeah, and I think we should first think about, like, the people who were using this word, you know, the, the ancestor of our current word god, you know, what were they invoking? What, what gods did they believe mm. in? So we know that the Vikings believed in Odin and Thor, and uh, so what does it mean to invoke Aphrodite, for example? Another way in which I could think about is through trance states, through dance and song. These are times when, and also war, by the way, in which you can, you really fully embody a character. You wear a persona, so to speak, and you embody qualities that are not totally your own. So if you embody Aphrodite, then you feel more sensual. If you embody Mars, you feel more like a soldier, like a warrior. If you embody Jupiter, then you are very benevolent and graceful and, and, and uh, expensive. So invoking a god means embodying certain qualities, certain having a certain character. Okay, so I, what you're talking about, what we're kind of describing, is uh, polytheistic view of mm -hmm. the world, right? Where there, yes. there's not just one god, but many gods. Okay, I think we need to pause for a second. We can hear our, our tea is ready. So we're going to take mm -hmm. a quick break and we'll be back in a And we're back with a cup of mocha. So where were we? We talked about polytheism. Yes, so what is a god from a polytheistic view? What do they, does it represent? What, what is it really? How would you define it? It's a psychological belief, first and foremost, that divides certain qualities in you 
and designate it into different characters, into figures, and with stories. So uh, you might think of um, Jupiter or Aphrodite or all sorts of gods as parts of you. Parts of you? Interesting. Is it only parts of you, though? Or do you, don't you think it's also parts of the world or the universe or nature? Of course. Perhaps a better way to say it is that you are part of it. So a god like, say, Aphrodite, a Greek goddess, she represents beauty, love, attraction, pleasure. So mm -hmm. like these are things that all people experience at different times to degrees. And so Aphrodite is a name and also has, has stories, myths associated with it that expresses something about these kind of experiences, right? Of beauty, yeah. art, and, and these kind of things. Mm -hmm. Yes, definitely. So when people talk about polytheism, they often think about it as a belief, as if those people believed in gods, uh, the same way that a, a Christian in the 21st century believes in God. But that is very different ways of being. I don't, I don't want to say belief, but I'll get into it in a moment. Because a person who is a polytheist is not believing in different gods because he thinks of them first and foremost as psychological gods. Whether they exist out there as a person with a body, I think it mattered less for them. What mattered for them is the rituals, the holidays, the celebrations, um, and the way of life that surrounded around the gods. The gods were always at the center of, of the business, the center of the city. Life surrounded around the gods because the gods were the ideas. In fact, they were the projections of certain ideas that uh, society as a whole wanted to do. For example, if you would like to build a beautiful building, you have to say that it is for, for a certain god. You do it for, to honor a god. So the gods were interwoven in the, in the fabric of the life of the ancient Greek people, for example. These are the people that I think about. Um, even in their language. The gods were part of the language. Uranos, for example, is sky, and it is also the god of the sky. Yeah, so if you think about it like that, then it doesn't really make sense to say if you believe in the sky, or if you believe in fertility, mm -hmm. or in war. Now, these are things that you experience that, that are just part of the world. So you don't have to believe in something other than what you, you experience firsthand. Absolutely. Because and that's why you know it. It's not a matter of belief, but a matter of knowledge. Yeah. These days, we are mostly living in a, in a monotheistic world. The Abrahamic religions are monotheistic. There is only one God, which is, it goes in contrast to the polytheism. So, what happens there is, in my opinion, is a loss of psychology a loss of the understanding of the individual. Instead of seeing the Aphrodite in you, the Jupiter in you, the Mars in you, then there is only one God where that God has to embody all of you. 
you have to see all the qualities in that gun and that doesn't really work well it can work i think it you know it brings about a certain perspective that's very different because if you believe that everything that exists including yourself and, and the rest of the world all has the same origin the same source mm. then it kind of makes you have a perspective of like everything is connected in some way right mm-hmm Oh, absolutely. I do agree that unity is, is, is real. There is something that unites the individual. There is something that unites society. And therefore, you can also think of like one God. But it is important to, in my opinion, not to go to one side of the duality and kind of find your place in the middle. You can appreciate the many, the diversity, while... being connected to the one in a, in a way. Yeah, I remember that I read once a quote from Marie-Louise von Franz, famous Jungian psychologist, who said that in most polytheistic traditions, there's sort of a latent monotheism. And in most monotheistic traditions, there's a latent polytheism. Hmm. In the sense that like, you know, even if in a certain mythology, there were many different gods, there was usually... Sort of like one that was the father of them all or something like that you know mm. they, they represented unity in some sense um and also in, even in some monotheistic religion like catholicism for example you've got a bunch of angels and saints mm. that are kind of similar to polytheistic gods you know they're they're divine beings are greater than human and yet they're not one with the the one with wholeness but You know a certain personality a certain way of being that, mm-hmm. you know you pray to a certain angel for a certain purpose or whatever mm. yeah so in fact in practice this tension was maintained even though there is an appearance of one God there is also a worship of the many in Catholicism and even in polytheism there is always or oftentimes a one God that subsumes them all. The Vikings, I believe, had the Allfather, right? Odin. Yeah, I think he was sort of that more monotheistic conception, even though he was one among several. Hmm. And another example that comes to my mind is Brahman, who is the god that is beyond all the gods, beyond Shiva and Shakti, beyond the duality. In Hinduism, right? In Hinduism, yeah. yeah. Okay, so we know that people from all over the world throughout history have come up with pantheons of gods and also monotheistic religions. But I want to kind of take a step back a little bit and think about, from like a, a psychological perspective, why humans would give names to gods and, and worship gods. And I think it goes to the fact that like as a human, you know, we do experience having... Uh, a will of our own that we can we can sort of control what we do in our lives but only to a certain extent you know we have we experience a lot of different emotions and instincts desires that sometimes are confusing that seem beyond our control you know even sometimes we do things that we don't intend to do like you know you might say something you didn't intend to like a slip of the tongue or miss an important meeting because you know, your mind just didn't didn't allow you to remember it you know things mm-hmm. like that are happening all the time 
And so having a belief or a, a system of gods helps you to explain like where are these things coming from? If they're not from me, they're not from my ego, what I choose, <laughs> they must be coming from somewhere, right? Yes, exactly. And that's where, that's the psychology that people had in the past. The gods, that was their psychological theory. Um, it is not something that we need to outgrow as people usually think. We outgrow the mythological times. We are so much progressive. We're so much forward in these times. I think we lost the connection to the many. And I think that's a shame. Yeah, I think that's why we see so much mental illness these days. I mean, at least one of the factors is that people don't have the myths, the narratives to interpret their own lives, to situate their own lives in a bigger framework, something that gives it meaning, <laughs> like more ancient peoples did when they, when they had myths and, and gods to relate to. That's why I like the current psychological theories not the ones that are studied in academia, but the ones that are leading in the people, in fact, uh, which I like very much and we've been investing a lot of time working on, which is MBTI, more specifically the psychological type. Another interesting system is the Enneagram. So according to both systems, you can divide people into certain types. So in the MBTI it is 16 types, in the Enneagram it is 9 types, in astrology it's literally limitless. And that gives you a connection to breaking down things in your mind, unloading them into a map, and then looking at your life from that map and making a lot of sense. It helps you to understand yourself and also to grow as a person and achieve your goals. Yeah, it does help you to understand both yourself and other people, how you fit into society and the world in general. And I think it can also shed a lot of light on you know, why there are a lot of differences in the way that people think about God particularly. We could get really deep into it and discussing like every type, but I think for now we can really just talk about the four types that Jung talked about in the sense of he discovered that there are four functions of consciousness, the four cognitive functions that every human possesses and uses but everyone has different orientation. There's one function where they are very conscious and can direct control very easily and, and another that's inferior that's really hard to use. So let's kind of explain that a little bit. All right, so we have four functions. Each one corresponds to an element. We have the sensing function, or the function of sensation it corresponds with earth through which we sense the external world you can think of all of your senses as well as action and instinct next we have the feeling function associated with the element of water this is where we create judgments based on emotions and when I mean judgments, I mean rational decisions, priorities, likes and dislikes, morality, um, conscience. That all goes here in the feeling function. Next, we have the intuition, the intuition function, which is about ideas. It is associated with fire. It is something that attracts you. 
They show you a vision, ideals, paths to go to, possibilities. And the next function, the final, is thinking, which is associated with air. And that is about thoughts, systems, logic, words, language. Now, we can generally divide people into one of these four types. Every person has one favorite function. For me personally, it is thinking. For Danny, it is intuition. But the idea is that that function, which is your favorite, can tell a lot about how you see God. Because in a way, you project onto God your favorite qualities. You think, oh, God must be as good as I am in my favorite function. Because I think that your favorite function is what, is what you do most of the time and you take it for granted. You're very good at it, but you don't know it unless you become aware of it. Let's get more specific. Let's talk about how each type sees God. Let's begin with the sensing types or simply sensates. So for someone with a superior sensation function who orients themselves in the world primarily through what they perceive through their senses, through their body, God for them, I think, is basically pleasure, you know, through the senses, through eating and drinking and having sex and exercising, all these bodily movements and stimuli, you experience pleasure. So I would think for them, God is, is primarily like the bliss of ultimate pleasure or something like that. That's very interesting. I am really curious how it feels to be a sensei type. Well, I think also something that, that might be common among sensate type is sort of a more concrete material conception of God, like maybe actually having a, a particular form, like whether it's thinking of God as having a body like a person or thinking more in terms of like a goo <laughs> that mm -hmm. um, fills the universe. Mm -hmm. Like, I think because sensate types need to ground everything in their their own concrete experience then you know god might just be the entirety of all matter that exists or something like that hmm interesting yeah so the sensates see the world through a materialistic perspective as a generality the experience is very earthy very materialistic so God is, in a way, I, I have a feeling that these are the types that would be, would tend to be more polytheistic. Because sensation is about the many. There are different sensations, different flavors, different sights and smells and, and different ways to, to, be, to feel pleasure and different, different ways of feeling pain. The world of sensations is very poly, polytheistic. So I think there is a propensity for these types to be more polytheistic. Interesting. Yeah, I think that's, that's probably true. It's harder to imagine that everything has a single origin in the earthly material realm because there's so much diversity. Yes, absolutely. Okay, now let's move on to the feeling types. How do the feeling types see God? 
So we said that feeling is about morality, about what's right and wrong. So a feeling type would project onto God goodness. God is good. God is all about what I see as morally good. For example, compassion, sympathy, charity, joy, pleasure, all the things you like. That is God. Yeah, I think you basically covered it. Yeah, <laughs> feeling is about what is, what is good, what is beautiful, all these subjective kind of judgments. So God is whatever is subjectively felt to be, to have high value, the yeah. highest value. Yeah, and I should mention that these types also tend to be conscientious in the sense that they are very careful about their conscience, about their moral. So they see God as a judge. Okay, now let's move on to intuition. Okay, so for intuitive types, and here I'm, I count myself among them, our consciousness is focused mostly on possibilities, uh, not on what is physically present, but on what might be, what could be. So we kind of live more in the imagination than physical reality. So I think God for intuitive types is generally some sort of ideal image. Perhaps they tend to have a view sort of like, I think it was Spinoza, the philosopher Spinoza, who basically, I don't remember the exact wording, but he said that God is sort of like the concept that includes all other concepts or something mm. like that. You know, it's like the most abstract, inclusive thing that you can imagine, that is God. Wow. So there is like a one idea of a God, the perfect idea. Yeah. And that might be more common among intuitive types that are also introverted. Mm. Um, extroverted intuitive types might might tend to think of it differently. But in, in some way, I would, I would say, yeah, it's a, God is a, it's an image. It's, it's a possibility. Mm -hmm. um, it's kind of something in the future, you know, because intuition is mostly perceptions about what could happen in the future, something that, you know, is, is a, an idea that is attracting you forward to some mm -hmm. goal, some something to achieve. And so I think um, intuitive types tend, if they, if they believe in God, then God is, is sort of some future vision that's destined to happen or something like that. Very interesting. Yeah. So I, I am not an intuitive type, but I use intuition like everyone. Um, but I use it more extrovertedly because my type use it in an extroverted way. So I am more less concerned about finding the one idea and more seeing the many ideas. So for people of, who has this attitude, they see gods in also the many, but the many possibilities, the many ideas, the many paths I could take. Okay, now let, then let's move on to the last one, thinking. So I'm a thinking type, and God for thinking types is can, can be conceived as what is known as the logos, um, language, words, structure, law, everything that organizes things, systems, and I sound very vague because that is the nature of thinking. It is very airy, very vague, but 
it is also what unites everything together. We cannot live, really, without logic. That's what we use to tell whether something is true or false. So, for thinking types, God is one who knows the ultimate truth, I should say. Thinking would be like, what is the, what is the formula that solves all formulas, you know? Like the ultimate equation or... Mm -hmm. the... the mathematics of reality, the yeah. logic and language. So, for thinking types, um, language would be kind of holy, in a way. Mm -hmm. Because there is a lot of respect for language. Because it organizes your mind. You have definitions, and if you have definition for every word, and your sentences do not contradict each other, and all your statements are in order, then you have a clear, crisp mind. Okay, so we talked about different perspectives through which we can see God. We talked about different perspectives through which different types see God, that they um, highlight a certain quality that would like to see in God. But yeah, of course, miss, many people come with the preconceived notions of what God is from culture, obviously. Here we are talking about what you come from nature, in a way. How you are born, what is the natural way for you to see God in your own psyche. But, you know, people grow in different traditions, Christian, Muslim, Jewish, um, Buddhist, and so on. So they see God in, in, with different ideas, different notions. Yeah, um, certainly I think in the culture in which we're living now in the United States that today, in, in 2022, most people, if you say the word God, the meaning that they think of is the Christian God or the Judeo-Christian God, even though there, there are differences between the Jewish and Christian ideas about God, but there's, there is some overlap. And I think people generally assume that if you, you know, if someone asks you on the street, do you believe in God? They're probably asking, do you believe in the God of the Bible, right? Yeah. I usually, if someone asked me that today, I would say yes. Even though their idea of God is different than mine. Because that allows me to have a conversation with them about what kind of God we believe in and how different it is. It, it opens up a conversation of different values and different way of perceiving the world. Yeah, I think I would also say the same. I, I mean, I wouldn't leave it at that. I wouldn't just say yes and go on my way. I would, yeah, I would be curious to know, like, okay, who is God for you? How do you de define God? Or, or what is it? How do you experience God in your life? You know, something like that. Um, yeah, obviously. Be because if you... If you just leave it at, you know, you're a theist or an atheist, you believe or you don't, then it's not really accomplishing anything. You know? mm -hmm. It's just like... Yeah, to me, I think the discussion of, of whether you believe in something, yes or no, or, or degrees of belief, this comes from a lack of belief, first and foremost. Like, you, you don't, if you don't have evidence for something, then you don't believe in it. And I think we went too far from the original definition of belief. A belief originally, the way it was used in, in uh, ancient times, in the times of the Bible, according to some scholars, is that belief was based on evidence. You only, you only believe something which you have seen evidence for. But today we use the word belief as if, like, 
how far can you delude yourself that you believe in something that you don't? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I yeah. think of belief as something that just happens. It arises naturally <laughs> when you have had enough experience that you, you feel certain in something. Then, okay, you, you have trust, you have belief in whatever it is. Um, but to say that you believe without having that evidence, without experiencing it firsthand, is, uh, I don't even know necessarily, like, how to describe that other than indoctrination, you know, yeah. other than, like, you are afraid to admit that you don't have the evidence for it, so you, you'll go along with, you know, whoever is wanting you to say that you believe in it. Yes. Um, and here I go with Jung, who, when he was asked whether he believes in God, he said, I know, I know God. And that, because that takes back the discussion of God down from the flimsy areas of belief down to earth. Do we know it or do we don't know it? And how do we know it? You need to know how to see. It is a matter of perspective. So, for example, if you see the way that Jupiter manifests in your life, Saturn, all of these gods, you don't believe in it, you know it. Like, for example, today, let's talk about today. Today, the moon is in Cancer, and I feel way more emotional uh, today compared to other days. So, for me, it is a reality. It is a reality that proves itself again and again. Whenever the moon shifts um, phases, I say, oh, yeah, I do have the quality of this time. By the way, last time we had our podcast, the moon was in Aries. We were way more fiery. Now we are more like swaying on, 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 a, on a river, I feel. Yeah. Yeah, when the moon is in Cancer, there's much more sort of a desire for coziness and comfort and letting yourself feel the feels, you know? Yeah. So I also want to point out that the ideas that we've been discussing and these different ways of seeing God or the gods is probably very unfamiliar to a lot of people today, right? I mean, most of, certainly most of the religions that are popular and I think there are many reasons for that, particularly the fact that there's been sort of, I feel, a watering down of religion and philosophy <laughs> among, you know, the mainstream in the modern age. Mm -hmm. Not a lot yes. of people have really heard um, different conceptions of God they, you know, maybe they only know the, from the church that they grew up in or whatever and spoke about God in a very, perhaps a very, like, literal by the book. The Bible is the literal truth and Jesus, the man, is literally God. And, you know, like, they don't give any sort of nuance or a more modern psychological perspective. So I think it's important to address that side of the issue too, and that like the old religions, the, the traditions that exist, 
are not really working today for most people. Mm -hmm. Yes, they're not working. It's true. Because people do things, historically, things have been done in the name of Christianity, for example, that completely go against what Jesus said. The Inquisition, do you think Jesus would approve the Inquisition? Of course not. I think it really much goes against the ideas of Christianity. So there's no wonder that the old symbols, the old symbols of Judaism and Christianity, do not, for certain people, you know, do not work. For many people, in fact. And it's a growing phenomenon. It is, uh, the more we progress in time, there is a sense of like losing the old symbols and moving into something else. Yeah, definitely. And I think a big part of why that's happening, I mean, there are many reasons, but I think a big thing is also the history of women in Christianity and, and other Abrahamic religions that people feel that, you know, um, saying God is masculine as he is just um, reinforcing the idea of patriarchy and that women are subservient to men and, and these kind of ideas um, and of course most modern people that believe that women and men are equal in some sense at least have equal value um, they don't like that conception of, of mm -hmm. God absolutely yeah um, yeah, the patriarchy is associated, it comes with the Abrahamic religions. And that is not such a good thing. We need to be equal, we need to cooperate, we can't be like that. It's not nice, to say the least. So, some people would then say, okay, the word God is cancelled, right? We don't use that word anymore because it's associated with patriarchy or it's associated with Christianity and so they want to adopt new words to talk about something similar you know maybe they you know some people today prefer to use like the word source for example mm -hmm. um, pure source energy for example <laughs> yeah pure source <laughs> energy from our spiritual guru Marniti mm -hmm. so what what do we think about that like is the word God still useful should we still use it or is, and what about goddess? Like, is is there room for a feminine conception of God as well? Mm -hmm, definitely. Well, whether we use the word God or not, it's about your personal tastes, I think, and about how you use the word God. I like to use the word God in order to talk about it, in order to push the boundaries of the of 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 this term and figure it out. And I, I don't, also, I feel that I don't want the patriarchal angry God to take monopoly over the world. I think that a big way of owning your relationship to God is to also own the world and say, I will not be affected. I will not be affected by this perverted uh, image of God that you created out there in society. I'm going to use the word with my own interpretation. Yeah, I I admire that view. I I think I share that view, though I do also 
you know, I recognize not everyone is a thinking type like you. Know, <laughs> can yeah. Easily change their definitions of words. Yeah. And also, some people might have some healing to do. You know, a lot of people have had traumatic experiences with religion that you know shamed them for their sexuality or oppressed them because they're a woman. Or you know, there are many reasons why people might have very negative associations to the word God. And so, you know, I can understand why they might want to avoid it for some time, but ultimately I would hope that they can find healing from those wounds and so that that word is no longer a trigger for that, that pain. Yeah, definitely. And I'm really not uh, a fascist about it. I don't care. Use whatever word you, you want to use. I... I would use the God in certain contexts. In other contexts, I will use this myself, the self. We'll get into that concept later on. In other contexts, I might talk about particular gods or particular goddesses that I see in me. So I'm very, I'm quite loose about it, but that's me. And everyone can just choose their own preferences. Yeah, the thing is that my moon is in Capricorn. So there is some kind of emotional detachment, a lack of sentimentality for me, but also a lot of sensitivity because I have cancer rising. It's a contradiction, I know, but we are contradicting beings. Yes, we are. Okay, enough about me. Okay, so regardless of whether you like to use the word God or not, there is something you know behind the word that is at least we can say is, is useful to talk about right that there whether you call it god or something else there is something there so can we try and sort of define what that is what what is behind whatever word you want to use that is universal that is universal that's a big question jung had some answer to that he said that what stands in the center of the psyche of a person is a thing called the self. It is very similar to the concept of Atman in Hinduism. It is a core of your being that Hillman called it the archetype of meaning and Edinger, Edward Edinger called it the archetype of acceptance par excellence. Meaning, this is an archetype of, your, of a wholeness. Everything that is a whole can be conceived as having a self. So, what does myself include? It includes my consciousness, my ego, in a way, but also all of my unconsciousness, all of the things that happened to me in the past, all of the repositories of, of, of memories and experiences, and also my imagination and all the archetypes that play in my psyche. Um, they're all included into one whole, which is called the self. And Jung called it the Imago Dei, the image of God in men, also in women. And that way of seeing God is seeing it as something whole. And notice that this is, this is first of all, my favorite way of seeing God because it is it doesn't side with one side of the duality it doesn't side with the masculine it doesn't say that God must be masculine there is also a goddess here 
in Hinduism they talk about Shiva is the masculine and Shakti is the feminine and we need to respect both qualities so the self really fulfills that uh, integral perspective yeah I think this is how I tend to think of God if I if I even use that word it's usually with the meaning of the archetype of self and I like this this definition because it is empirical basically it, it's a psychological definition because this we we can know the self exists in the psyche because for one thing we dream at night no that is not a conscious invention of our ego it's not something we, we elaborate with intention it's something that happens to us in our minds during mm -hmm. the night as we sleep and also the phenomenon phenomenon of synchronicity which we talked about in our last episode we have many experiences that show us that like basically we're not alone in the mm -hmm. psyche that you know we might feel sometimes that we are but there is something bigger that we are a part of that our, our conscious mind which is you know limited to this this moment in time and space where i am now this experience it's only one part of something bigger and there is a subject there is an intelligence there that is really more in control than my ego is yes if you see the different ways in which the world is alive and really synchronicities is one way then you really don't feel alone you feel that yeah there is an archetype of me there are different archetypes and they organize the world and the world is way more magical than we think it is. I will mention again that synchronicity that we had back in uh, a few months ago when we drove from California back to our home in Oregon and there was I looked at the GPS and it says there are four hours and 20 minutes left to reach our destination while we just passed next to a sign that pointed to the direction of a city called Weeds in California. Now the connection of Weeds with the number of 420 is both are different symbols of the archetype of cannabis as it is understood in, in society. That's how we call it. These are the symbols we use. So this is a meaningful coincidence and that is like for me it's like a, a hint or like a, a wink it's like the universe winks at you and tells you it's all right, you're on the right track. Or not, but you see <laughs> you, you see the meaning, you see that you're not alone. <laughs> yeah, and these things are happening all the time if you are looking out for them. It's not a rare occurrence. Our whole lives are really orchestrated by these invisible forces mm -hmm. and it gives everything meaning. I, yeah, I want to go back a little bit to definitions you mentioned of the archetype of self that uh, Hellman says the archetype of meaning. So it's like whatever can give anything that you experience in life meaning. In order to find meaning in something it has to be related to other things, right? If something is only meaningful if it is placed within a narrative or a system, right? It, it, 
nothing has meaning in isolation by itself. Mm, yes. And so I think that the self is this pattern of wholeness and it gives meaning to everything because if you can if you can experience anything in life and find that it has meaning that it's you know serving some kind of purpose in your life mm -hmm. then your life is a whole it's not fragmented it's not split mm -hmm. into different contradictory things that seem chaotic and random and mm -hmm. meaningless it's all knit together into a you yes know, a tapestry that is whole and complete and beautiful exactly that's very beautifully said so let's talk about beauty for a moment and truth as we mentioned earlier the four functions the four elements the self is you can think about it as the fifth as the quintessence as the ether as the one thing from which all four elements came from so in that numerological sense also um, the self is something that unites every all phenomena and that actually takes me to Jung's definition of God. Let me share the quote with you. To this day, God is the name by which I designate all things which cross my willful path violently and recklessly, all things which upset my subjective views, plans and intentions, and change the course of my life for better or worse. Interesting. I'm really struck by the contrast of that definition with the kind of definitions that, you know, I, I'm used to from Christianity. Of mm -hmm. Like, you know, God is all good. God is omniscient and omnipotent and all these things. You know, usually just all good things. But here it's kind of a little more mm -hmm. ambiguous. It's anything that disrupts my usual way of seeing things or any surprises that come come upon me at any time you know yeah it's, it's a really different way of looking at at god but i i can see how it's it's true like if, if you think there's if you can split everything that you experience into the things that i can control and i can predict and i've figured out then anything else seems like a surprise seems chaotic and so that is based that is God. It's, it's hmm. what you don't yet have an explanation for. Yes. And he mentioned for better or worse. So that is a way of not putting God as one side of the duality, as good, but as he's also, or she, or they, to be more accurate, are responsible for what we experience also as bad or as evil sometimes. Even, God forbid, genocide. Well, Christians would say that that is caused by Satan. But, but that's put, because they designate a name. There is an entity, a character that is responsible for, for evil. And that is the adversary. In fact, the word Satan, the etymology in Hebrew, means an adversary. So when the word was used in the Bible, especially in the book of Job, it means an adversary to God. God has an adversary that tells him, that challenges him. Basically, the view of the self that Jung provides 
is one that transcends the, the, the Christian God and the, and the Satan. And there is a, a one thing on top of them, even a higher level that includes both. And, uh, but that puts us in a very uncomfortable position. Very uncomfortable. Because we need to justify, so to speak, white supremacism, racism, all the awful things you can think about in the world, you need to, in a way, explain them, put them within a system, not to say that they are good, not to say that they are uh, justified. Just, justified as this is the just way of, of being, but to justify, I mean in the sense of to explain and to put it in a system, which also reminds me there is another perspective according to which there is no evil. Evil is not really a thing. In Latin, it is called the privatio boni, the privation of good. In fact, there is no evil. All evil that we see in the world, all the greed and murder and these evil things, basically, if you look on a higher level and you try to philosophize enough, you will see that it serves some good purpose at the end. What do you think about it, Danny? I think you're right that it, it does put us in an uncomfortable position because we've generally, in Western society, been very comfortable just rejecting and demonizing what we see as evil and you know, not ever trying to understand it or see you know, where it comes from. But it's precisely because of that that I think it's important to adopt this view that, you know, even what appears to us as, as bad and evil and destructive comes from the same source as what we see as good. And so if we adopt this, this a more holistic, integral perspective that tries to see where it comes from, then we can actually create a better society. So Jung talked about the, the archetype of the shadow, right? That... Mm-hmm. Um, basically is everything that the ego consciousness rejects because it doesn't align with values or social norms or whatever for, for whatever reason it's it's rejected and so we all each have our, our individual shadows of the, the different qualities or desires in ourselves that we have rejected because we say that they're evil but it's important to recognize those things because they aren't ultimately evil at their core. You know, the, like for example, aggression might be something that's part of someone's shadow. You know, they, they have not allowed themselves to ever experience and express their aggression. But if you are conscious of it, then you can actually find ways to c- constructively express it. You know. Yes, we have destructive qualities in us. And it takes mental conscious effort to make them constructive, to take them from the area of destruction into the area of creation, of instead of ruining something because I don't like it, how can I create something good? But as I hear myself speak, I also think that there is a very respectful place for destruction. Yes, definitely, there is room for destruction. If I can bring in an astrological perspective, the planet Mars is associated with destruction, with 
severing things and destroying things that's, that no longer serve justice, right? And it's a necessary part of our solar system and it's a necessary part of our personalities that we are able to say no when something goes against our sense of justice and, and, and our, we're able to destroy it. Um, and that's why within astrology, particularly traditional astrology, um, Mars was considered one of the malefic planets. So the seven traditional planets were split into benefic and malefic. Benefic meaning doing well, bringing favorable things, and malefic meaning doing ill, doing bad things, basically. But there's always kind of this understanding that even the malefic planets, Mars and Saturn, they're serving a, an important function that, you know, without them, the system wouldn't, wouldn't work as a whole. So even though they, they bring about difficult experiences, so Mars bringing about destruction, um, war, it's because Mars is, is very hot, brings a lot of high heat, lots of fire, and that, that can destroy things. And Saturn is very cold and dry, so it, it's associated with, you know, death and decay and, you know, these things that we think of as, as bad, but they, they have their place. They are important. And even though they seem bad to us, they're, they're actually serving a function. And I think the, uh, a way to kind of ease into this perspective of seeing beyond the duality of good and evil is to really like look at life more from the perspective of story, right? Like if you watch a movie, for example, like Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or whatever, like you can easily admit like, oh yeah, there needs to be a bad guy. <laughs> there, need, mm. there needs to be an adversary There's, because otherwise there would be no hero. There would be no conflict. It would be boring. It would be boring, right? So we need to kind of adopt that same attitude about our own lives that like, yeah, there are awful things or shitty things we have to deal with in life but without them life would be boring you know there, there, yes there's only good and there's only happiness because it's contrasted with the difficult and the, the painful yes and that reminds me the duality of jupiter and, and saturn jupiter is about expansion faith grace luck all the good things right so, and Saturn is the god of structure, institutions, limitations, death. Doesn't sound very good, but it's, what can you do? You can't have one without the other. You gotta be limited. If you really to manifest the free spirit of, of Jupiter, you gotta be limited. For example, if you have many ideas of what you want to do, uh, what kind of projects you want to do, and you have 15 different ideas, well, Saturn says, let's get down to business and choose one. And without Saturn, you would just be floating in the gaseous atmosphere of possibilities. Yeah, so even though Saturn represents things that we generally think of as bad or difficult, it can also have a more positive expression in like, discipline, responsibility, long-term thinking, you know, these kind of things mm -hmm. that are actually, I mean, in today's society are, are pretty highly valued in, in certain places. So it's not, it's not black and white here. It's not good or bad. There's, it's, 
everything is great. Basically. Yes, it's very much needed, both, both sides of the duality and balance. Balance is key. Okay, so we've covered a lot of different aspects of, of this topic of God and, and what is God. I'd like to also mention another important thinker and author from the last century, um, C.S. Lewis, who wrote a book that we both have been reading recently called The Miracles, which has kind of opened my eyes to some new perspective, particularly in the distinction that he makes between nature and what is natural and the supernatural. He talks about how most people these days, particularly those who are no longer religious, you know, they're more secular and have a scientific worldview, are naturalists. They, they believe that everything is from nature. There's nothing that happens that is not a natural occurrence. And I used to also have this view. Um, what about you, Elior? I also used to think that, I mean, I started to adopt this view in my early 20s, I should say, that in fact everything is natural. The supernatural does not exist, and the supernatural I mean in the colloquial sense of the word, as a flying like a superman, as, you know, manipulating elements, like an avatar. This belongs to, to fairy tales. And what you have left is the natural, and therefore everything is natural. But I also, after reading this book, updated my perspective, my dictionary, in fact. Not everything is natural, says C.S. Lewis, and I agree. Because the supernatural is right under our noses, and that's our reason. Reason is supernatural, because reason is something that draws from nature and judges it, says something about it. So, we mentioned before thinking and feeling. These are both rational functions. So, reason is includes both of them. So, it is saying about something that's wrong, that's right, that's true, that's false. This act, this cognitive act, is in a way supernatural um, and for evidence for it is in us humans we are doing it much more than animals do it sure there is some kind of social structures in in, in wolves and other animals but um, they don't have a language a written language they don't have these complex thoughts that we have so among all the living things that we know, we are the most rational. So in that sense, we are the most above nature. Yeah, um, if you think about it, like, you know, most of the things that we do every day, maybe not most, but many of the things we do every day are supernatural. They're, they're going against the natural order of things. You know, when I put in my contact, contact lenses in the morning, I am sort of going against nature because naturally my eyes, I, I, I have a cornea condition and I, wouldn't, I don't see well, but I can, I can uh, go against that na natural tendency because the reason that we humans collectively have been able to figure out 
how to make a device that allows me to see. Um, and like, you know, setting an alarm clock in the morning is also mm. like going against nature. You're making a decision to say, no, I, I will wake up at this time, even though according to my natural biological rhythms, I would probably wake up at a different time. So mm. supernatural for me now, as I understand it, is it's not something rare, not something spooky, like, you know, talking to a ghost. It's things that happen every day. The, the, yes. The judgments, the the reason, the intellect that I have and that I use every day. Yeah, the supernatural is quite banal if you think about it. We just got used to it. We got used to it, uh, but it's everywhere. And so, in C.S. Lewis's view, it is the supernatural that he calls God, as I, as I understand, that he sees nature as separate from God. God stands outside of nature, creates nature, but nature is not itself part of God, which is still kind of, like we were saying, more of a dualistic conception of seeing God as the, the masculine, the creator, whereas nature is, is the feminine, the, the passive, the created. Mm -hmm. um, so it's still not totally a holistic perspective. It's not like the, the Jungian view of the self that goes beyond all dualities, right? Yes, in a way, C.S. Lewis preserves the Christian view of reality um, because he says that the creator sides with the supernatural part and the created is the natural part. But I'd like to pause a little, a little bit, take a step back and talk about what does it mean to create. There are different senses to that word. Uh, what we usually think of, of the word in, uh, th through a creationist perspective it is a God that created the world out of nothing, ex nihilio. So the first fact of reality is supernature, is consciousness, is reason, and the rational part, the material part, and so on, comes later as an afterthought. And this kind of perspective also is called in philosophy idealism. But there is another perspective through which we can see creation not as out of nothing, but as assigning a role. And that takes us again to the idea of self. This the archetype of self is the archetype of meaning. Some scholars trace back the root of uh, the Hebrew word bara, which means to create, to assigning a role within a system. So when God created, as it says in Genesis, that the idea is that God assigned a role to something. The, the thing, the material, already existed. At the beginning there was chaos. This is the prima materia in Latin. And from that, God assigns roles to different parts. So that kind of God is more in tune, more equal to the goddess, to the goddess of nature, of habits, of matter. Because there is no creation out of nothing. There is no this omnipotency, you see. Um, but there is, there is an active role of creation, yes, but not of absolute creation. Yeah, I think that view that gives supremacy to the masculine principle of reason and 
order has kind of become exaggerated in the modern day and particularly like in Christianity, in Christian religion, to the point that the feminine nature, what exists naturally and, and by extension our own bodies and our instincts and our sexuality and these things um, have been so devalued and, and denigrated. I think to, to get to a more holistic perspective that sees that like the masculine is not better than the feminine, mm -hmm. the the supernatural is not better than the natural. They, they they are always working together. You know, it's the it's it's like a dance, mm. you know, the the push and the pull of the masculine and the feminine. Um, which is why I really like the Chinese philosophy of Taoism, or the the yin and the yang shows that they're they're both arising together one never exists without the other mm -hmm. and that's really what life is about and that's what um, the psyche the soul is is that it's in between these two it's it's what bridges between what is natural what is instinctive what what you do without trying without thinking and your rational motives and and what you your your moral conscience and, and trying to balance between both of these. Yes, we are at the center of of this duality, and that is what in Jungian psychology we call the psyche. Psyche is in between spirit, if you will, on the one hand, and matter. It's what holds this tension, and the, the idea of the self is the one that holds the tension between dualities. So the more we hold the tension between dualities, the more we become whole. So can we think of any examples, like, you know, from our normal everyday life of holding the tension between mm -hmm. opposites? Like, how can we kind of bring that down to earth? One place in life that I think we see a lot of polarity, duality, is in politics, right? You know, everyone likes to choose their their one side especially here in the United States where there are two parties and so having being able to hold the tension would be to you know look at both sides try and understand where both sides are coming from mm. not just immediately reject anything that one side says because they're not your team you know mm -hmm. but try and, and understand what values they have, how they're different from yours, see where you might actually overlap so that then you can uh, come to a, a moderate position that, that takes into account both sides. That doesn't necessarily mean that like you're always going to end up agreeing with people on both sides, but you always you know remain open to yeah. like, oh, hey, maybe the position I have now is incomplete. Maybe someone else has can, can complement what mm -hmm. I believe and then I'll have a, a better picture, a bigger picture of the situation. Yes, and taking that back to the question of God, having an integral science, in fact, an integral psychology requires explaining God as it exists in our psyche. But then some skeptics might come and say, well, why are you wasting so much time talking about something which you don't know if it exists objectively? It could be an illusion. It could be something that is only pushing us towards bad things and we are being deluded by bad ideas. Yeah, that is a common argument 
that we hear from skeptics. And I think in order to address that question, we have to consider our epistemology, right? Epistemology basically means how we know what is true. By, by what means can we decide whether something is true or not? When someone says, well, what if this idea of God is just in the psyche, but doesn't exist objectively, they kind of aren't realizing that everything that we know, we only know through the psyche, right? Yeah. Like, anything that we say exists objectively, it's objective reality that's independent of the psyche, is hypothetical. I mean, we might have some, we might have good evidence for it, but all that evidence comes through the psyche. It must be experienced, you know. So, even the things that, like, the vast majority of scientists have accepted as this is the objective truth, it's still something that they, it's come to them through experience. Yeah. And so to say that, that God is something different, that, that we have to be able to justify it in a way that you don't have to justify, for example, like the, the concept of matter, matter as, as a, as a thing is also like unknowable to us. It's, it's, it's a hypothesis that there is something called matter hmm. um, because how we experience what we call matter is through our senses, right? Hmm. And we assume that behind this experience, like that's what makes up this table we call matter even though it's like nothing like how I experience it objectively you know according mm -hmm. to physical theories and atoms and everything it's really just little little particles that create this this experience of a table yeah that's uh, very interesting because yeah everything is experienced ultimately I live according to my own law according to myself according to what I feel uh, what I experience and what and my judgments, my reason, and I think that is something that a lot of people who consider themselves atheists would kind of identify with this stance, because they would say, "Yeah, I don't need to believe in a god in order to have morality. I have my morality, I have my conscience, and that's good enough for me." And I would say, "Hundred percent, sure." But your conscience comes from that self, that core in you, which some people call that thing a god. Yeah, exactly. I think a lot of, particularly modern Westerners, we've only been, we've only become familiar with an idea of God as totally external to ourselves, right? That it, you know, God is out there somewhere, wherever there is, mm. but but not here and now and with, with you and, and inside you, your body and your mind, which is what we're really talking about. That God, the self, at least, is both inside you and outside you. And so even the, what you think of as your private inner world, your thoughts, your inspirations, your moral judgments, 
these all connect you to the self. It's something that you are in, not just something that's yeah. in you. We are in the universe. <laughs> and yeah, so we can like zoom out the discussion. If we want to talk about objective in the sense of what is beyond my subjectivity, then we can talk about trans-subjectivity. Um, my psyche and your psyche. These are two individual psyches, but from a more, uh, from a bigger picture perspective, we are part of the same psyche. You can think of also the psyche of your lineage, your ancestry, and the psyche of humanity as a whole, and the psyche of Earth, and so on and so on. Yeah, and this is actually a very, relates to a very old idea that was believed by particularly uh, alchemists, medieval alchemists. They, they spoke about the anima mundi, which means the soul of the world. So they didn't think of the soul, the psyche, as just in every individual person. The psyche is around and in all of the universe basically that everything is part of the psyche and this also relates to another idea um, which is the term holarchy so holarchy is a kind of hierarchy but it's a particular kind of hierarchy because it is made of holons so what is a holon Elia? can you can you tell us mm -hmm. A holon is a unit, a whole unit, in fact, which parts of the unit contain the wholeness. An example for that is in our body. Every cell contains our DNA, and our DNA is our uh, totality, at least from a materialistic perspective. The same thing also happens on a psychic level. There are units in our psyche that contain each other in a hierarchy. I will not go deep into that. This is being talked about in Kabbalah, in Integral Theory of Ken Wilber, uh, Jean Gebzer talks about it. Perhaps that would be a topic for another podcast. But the idea is that there are levels in the psyche. These hierarchies, the higher you go, the more inclusive you become, meaning yourself, the, let's begin from your ego. Your ego is who you think you are, who consciously you know yourself to be. But yourself, as we said, is the totality of you, which includes also your unconsciousness. In that sense, it's a whole. So you can hypothesize that, well, maybe that whole is another whole that contains it. And it contains another hole and another hole, and you're like an onion. You have many, many layers. It seems obvious to me, at least, that we must be part of bigger holes, you know. It seems incredibly arrogant to assume that we as humans are just like the, the highest level mm. of, of psychic development, you know, that, yeah, we each are individuals, but... We are not part of any larger system or anything like that. It seems pretty evident that you know we are both made up 
of many different parts, and we are each a part in many different senses. You know, we're, we are one member of a family, we are one member of a community, of a species, mm-hmm. we're all participating in the biosphere of the Earth. So I find this is a really useful way to view the universe as a holarchy, that every part is a whole and every whole is a part. Yeah, that's a beautiful way of seeing the world, basically as a fractal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is no surprising that on a psychedelic experience, and I'm thinking mushrooms or LSD and other substances as well, you often see fractals. Because that really reveals something deep about reality, that it is fractal in nature. But at the end, it all comes back to the one. And perhaps through fractals, we can understand how God, or source, or self, or whatever you call it, is ever-present, is present everywhere. Because in every part, every part contains the whole from which it came. Exactly. I do think that for many people today, it is hard to accept this view, I guess, that they are part of something bigger in, in a psychic or mental sense, probably because they haven't been able to see and understand how they are participating meaningfully in something bigger than themselves. You know, mm-hmm. I think the breakdown of a lot of our social institutions and mm-hmm. the fact that you know old religious symbols aren't really working for people anymore means that a lot of people are feeling really alienated and separate. Mm-hmm. And so it is hard to believe when you're in that kind of emotional state of feeling alienated and separated, it's hard to believe that you're part of something bigger and meaningful. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, many people live in pretty harsh predicaments. They feel alienated from their family, from their community, from their work, from... They really don't see the, 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 the meaning in life. The self, the archetype of self, is quite absent from their life. In alchemical terms, this sort of experience is described as the nigredo, which is called the blackening. And again, the blackening is described as, as a fall, like rot, like black mold, like death. And that is an unfortunate place to be. But we got to remember that it's a phase because, in fact, it is part of a bigger circle. I won't get much into it now. But once you move out of it and you see the meaning, you can begin your journey of individuation, which is what you, the word Jung used to describe the journey of becoming whole. I think in in one sense, you could say that this journey of individuation is developing a very personal relationship with God, right? The God in you, at least, in Mm -hmm. the sense that it means that you accept, you realize that you, you, your ego, is not the final authority on things, right? That, Mm -hmm. That you are beholden to a higher authority, then you you are receptive to whatever messages the, the self might 
sending you through your dreams or through your unconscious impulses and things like that. So really, this is um, how I see the divine. I don't want to use the word God for that. I think the divine is a better word to describe all those times when I integrated knowledge and I see the meaning in my life. I see the meaning of a dream, the meaning of any experience that comes my way. That is what connects me to the divine. Now, I would like to play the devil's advocate again and say, okay, this is what gives meaning to you and me. But how can we see that this meaning is in fact objective? It is not confined to, our, to each individual, but it includes multiple people, many people. Okay, that's a good question. How do we know that these aren't just ideas in certain people's minds, right? How do we know that they have more objective reality? Well, if you think of these ideas of God as just existing in individuals' minds, that's still having a perspective of, you know, we're all totally separate individuals in, in the psyche, right? That there's nothing that connects us hmm. through the mind. Um, and that is kind of the general view of, of most people today, right? That our minds are, are separate. We're only connected through physical reality, but our, our minds are totally separate. And people kind of have this idea that all ideas of God and mythology were just like invented by someone one day, right? They just had, they just wanted to like have power over people or something, so they, they made these things up. But that's really kind of a, a misunderstanding, first of all, of how ideas of gods arise and, and myths are, are told. They are not just invented, but they come to people in dreams, in visions. I mean, people might later kind of impose their ideas onto it, kind of organize it according to their reason. But to begin with, it's an idea that comes to them. And this is true for, for everyone individually. Like, you know, you have experiences that you did not create. Like we had talked about dreams, first of all. Yes. Like often you see things in dreams that you've never seen in real life. And this is why Jung's discovery of the collective unconscious is such a big deal. It's such a big discovery, right, for for the modern age, because he found that really we are connected through the psyche. You know, he saw that people often dream of images of symbols that are part of human history. You know, they're, they're written in books and and in oral traditions. They've been told, but the people that dream about them usually have not ever been exposed to them in their waking life. So this is clear evidence that we are all connected in a, in a psychic way. Hmm. To say that it is subjective, that your dreams are subjective, is, not, is inaccurate, because that would be equal with saying that you created your dreams. But the fact is that you experience your dream as something that comes for you, something you're surprised by. So, in other words, objective is what can be seen from multiple perspectives. 
So what objective evidence do we have for the archetypes and for the self or for God, for anything that is basically beyond the individual? When we look at history, we see plenty of evidence. One evidence, uh, a destructive evidence, is mass movements of people, um, especially in fascism. Fascism is something that spreads, um, it captivates the soul, it captivates people in a very basic way, especially because of the aesthetics, because of the way people walk and because of a, a strong leader that can speak in a certain way. This is some kind of uh, a trance state of consciousness where there is an archetype or a person, a movement, where they talk about something that manages to touch many, many people. And the fact that millions of people can be united under uh, such a movement means that they are united under a common symbol or a common set of symbols. But that is one bad way in which it manifests. It also manifests in a lot of good ideas, you know, um, humanistic ideas, uh, the ideas about the rights of the individual. We have seen such great improvements in the past century with everything that has to do with the right of the individual. We all, we've also seen a lot of bad things as well, but uh, women's situation is much better. Uh, LGBTQ people are much better off today than in the past. So these ideas spread and we can see them in political movements, in social agendas and in ideologies. Yeah, so these ideas are definitely real in the sense that they have real effects on how people behave, how they interpret their experiences. So they're objectively real as much as anything we know is objectively real. Mm. This is the point that I really want to drive home here. Um, I see that it is very common today, um, at least among intellectuals, skeptic intellectuals, to talk about gods and myths as something that is invented. And that's what Yuval Noah Harari says, for example. He wrote The Brief History of Humanity. Brilliant person, brilliant book, I recommend it. But there is uh, one aspect of it which I tend to disagree with, or at least disagree with the way in which he phrases it. Uh, Yuval Noah Harari says that uh, myths are invented, and that really degrades myths. It really takes the meaning out of them, and it really kind of puts a lot of our history into the trash bin. And I find that that is such a disservice to, to, this, to the psyche, to the internal life of the individual. I much prefer the attitude of Joseph Campbell to myths, which is, let's look at the beauty of the myth and what and how is the myth is universal because we if you don't look at the symbolism of, of the myth 
because we don't live in a culture, in a mythological culture, like there used to be thousands of years ago, mostly oral mythological cultures, then we don't understand the symbolism, but myths are very much real, not in the sense of objectively physically real, but in the sense that they make sense of society, they make sense of and of the individual as well. Yeah, I share that same attitude. I think it's kind of indicative of sort of the arrogance, again, of the modern Western world, that we think that we just sort of, that we've just outgrown the need for myth anymore. Even though we still use them, we still are living our lives according to myths. They've just changed, and now they're, yes. you know, they're in movies, or they're in political ideologies, or they're in scientific paradigms, or whatever. We still unconsciously are living our lives according to certain narratives. Yeah, stories. Stories are what we as humans rely on. Bread and stories, I should say. <laughs> Even uh, science. Science is all a bunch of stories. Stories that are true, nonetheless. <laughs> uh, some of them true, some of them are not true. That's the whole idea of science. You debate about the truth of the story. But it all boils down to a story, because that's what connects the dots. All right, that was a very fruitful discussion. I very much enjoyed it. So did I. We talked about so many ideas. We tried to figure out together what God means. We reached some conclusions. And some things we left open. As a generality, for me, I can say that what I see as divine, as sublime, is wholeness, is uh, connectedness, which also etymologically relates to the word of religion. And this comes from the root, uh, from the Latin root of religare, which means to, to rebind, to reunite with your source, with where you come from. Um, this is in alchemy, this is also known as a conjunctio, as a union of spirit and matter and dualities. So I see God in, in the way of relating back to the oneness. But I also see the divine in the many. Um, so I'm not like one-sided here. I, I appreciate the many definitions and I, um, I just like to entertain them and explore the world, explore this idea of divinity from different perspectives. That's wonderful. I try not to be a stickler when it comes to the meaning of God or, or any other word. I'm just, I try to stay curious about the different definitions people have and trying to see the divine, trying to see meaning in different ways of thinking and, and different aspects of the universe because I just love to learn and I'm fascinated by it and I'm sure my thoughts on all of these ideas will continue to evolve as time goes on because that's that's the nature of life. Yes, and that's the fun part. <laughs> Developing your ideas, your beliefs, talking about them and seeing where it takes you. Language has a life of its own, Terence McKenna said, and I agree. It really takes you to wonderful places. 
So I hope you enjoyed this conversation and let us know in the comment what do you think God is? What is the divine for you? Do you agree with what we said about the different ways that God is seen through the four types? The sensing, feeling, intuitive and thinking types. Subscribe to our channel and to our podcast and like and see you next time. Bye-bye. Bye. -bye. Bye.